Good afternoon, I guess. <laughs> it's screen cleaning. I always start the show by saying good morning. And you're always off by just a couple minutes. That's right. And uh, this is Screen Cleaning. We're here every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. Pacific. And each and every week, we do our darndest to give you the very best in entertainment. And today, it's no exception. Because today, we are going to ask the very important question that you may have considered over your lifetime, maybe not. Do older TV shows hold up? Mickey, I know you weren't a part of this, but if you had to answer that question with a yes or no, do older TV shows hold up? Are these shows that you could just sit down and watch all the way through again? I mean, it clearly depends on the show, but I would have to say yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And Cole, we're going to find out what you and I think as we divide some of these shows into different categories, and maybe the answer will change depending on the show. But as we always do, we start each show with our very best in the news in Hollywood. And we have several trailers that have dropped recently that I think people are really excited for. Even another one since we had a production meeting yesterday, right? That's right. I'm actually very hesitant about this first big trailer. They actually released two trailers. Yes. One was a, and neither of them will appear in the actual film, I'm sure, because they were both teasers. The first one, of course, was for Toy Story 4, which was quickly followed up by basically a critique of the Toy Story 4 uh, teaser trailer. And I think we have a piece of that. Ducky, what? They're making another Toy Story movie. No, I thought those movies were done, dog. They made three movies. They did make three movies. This is number four. Oh, shoot. Come <laughs> on. I love the Toy Story, dog. Uh, Toy Story is my that's, jam. That's, what, wait, what about Buzz Lightyear's dog? I am Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger. <laughs> as funny as that is, it was definitely funnier than the first teaser trailer that they put out. I'm With a little a spork. I'm a little skeptical. I'm very – I feel like they're messing with something that a lot of people hold sacred. Mm-hmm. Mickey agrees. Cole, the trilogy was kind of perfect, but they surprised Ugh. me with each one of those, making them better than the the one that came before. So maybe they know what they're doing. So what's Just the, maybe. What's the other trailer they dropped that we ought to be excited about? Well, there was Dumbo yesterday that we got <gasps> a new trailer for. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And but the I, one that I'm actually excited for is different. But yeah, Dumbo was not part of our original meeting. I'm very excited for it. I know you're you are a little skeptical on that one. Meh. But okay, what's the other one then? But I'm excited There's for so many. Detective Pikachu, of course. He's a detective? Yeah, yes. I didn't in There like, are many different Pikachus out there, Jeffrey. Okay. So picture Pikachu is just um, is that a actually, general mouse? Is that the plural for Pikachu? Is Pikachus. it Pikachus or Pikachis? There are multiple Pikachai, okay. and <laughs> each one of them has their, its own little personality. Ash's Pikachu that was in the TV show and many other movies is just one specific Pikachu. Okay. This detective, he wears a detective hat. That's how you can tell he's different. Is a different Pikachu, and he has a voice by none other than Ryan Reynolds. And which is why you were a little worried maybe we couldn't talk about it on the show because Ryan Reynolds is also very famous for doing Deadpool. A very re kind of movie. Right. But remember last week we mentioned that for two weeks only there's going to be a PG-13 version of Deadpool 2 and it's called Once Upon a Deadpool. And they'll get my money. Co-starring Fred Savage of all people. Now, Mickey... Of all the big movies that are coming out this weekend, which one would you say you're most excited to see? There is Instant Family, Crimes of Grindelwald, or 
Ralph Breaks the Internet, which actually comes out next week. Which of those three would you most want to see? Mm, I'm actually going to Crimes of Grindelwald tonight. <gasps> I love Harry Potter, and okay. so I'm, that's my answer. Well, speaking of Crimes of Grindelwald, I believe Cole has a review of Crimes of Grindelwald. If you missed it last week, we played a little rock, paper, scissors, did a coin flip, and spun a wheel to decide which <sighs> of the two of us, Jeffrey, would go see the two big releases. Because mm-hmm. we, we tag-teamed the biggest one that's kind of halfway through next week. But between Instant Family and Crimes of Grindelwald, I won, as I usually do on the program when it comes to luck-based things. And I got to see Harry Potter 10, Fantastic Beasts 2, The Crimes of Grindelwald. And how was it? It was pretty good. So my review would focus around the fact that if you are a Harry Potter fan, of course you will already be going to see this. You don't need me to tell you that. But go see this if you're a Harry Potter fan. Plot-wise, story-wise, movie-wise, it's not great. It's probably not going (laughs) to drag people into the franchise that have been skeptical of it before. But if this is already the kind of world that you're excited to see where they go next, if you want to see how they visualize the inside of the French Ministry of Magic and the American Ministry of Magic and the British Ministry of Magic, you'll get to see all of that in a new way. You'll get to see the families that we recognize from the books presented you know, with new characters. The world expands in a glorious and beautiful way. And for fans of Harry Potter and the Wizarding World as they're branding it, you will love this. As a movie, you might not. Okay. But that's fine. So unless you're a fan, you're not going to like the movie. Probably not. If you're the kind of person that gets drugged along to these movies by super Harry Potter nerds, you might be bored for two hours and 16 minutes. Is it better than the first one? I don't think so. Mm. But they're very, very similar. The two Fantastic Beasts movies so far have been really close in like quality. This is starting to sound more and more like you didn't like the film. I... I didn't like it as a film, so okay. I'm probably going to go see it again if that also speaks to right. how much I liked it. And at that point, I will take off my film critic hat and try to enjoy it a little bit more. So, Cole, I promised you a curveball during the show, and the curveball was I went to go see Instant Family this morning at my local movie theater, and I noticed that the movie just wasn't starting. They were showing all the pre-previews. And so I went up to talk to somebody, and they said, yeah, we don't have the code from the movie studio, so we can't <laughs> actually show you the movie. But the, good, the silver lining was they said, here are some free movie tickets. Here are some free popcorns. And if you want to go into another theater and see another movie, you can, or we can just give you a refund. So I snuck into – I didn't sneak into. I was given permission. <laughs> I saw – Crimes of Grindelwald this morning. Now, I was a little confused because I walked in as there was some fight going on in a in a carriage in the air. So was that the beginning? That's how it starts. Okay, you only missed about five minutes. Um, What I will say about this film is I feel it's a little convoluted, uh, especially if you haven't brushed up on the previous film. And I only saw the previous film once. And if you walk in late, that doesn't really help either. I loved Johnny Depp as David Lynch. (laughs) <laughs> he was like a dead ringer for David Lynch. I think you you zeroed in on one word that really rang true with me, and that was a bore. I was bored. I was bored. I was surprised at the amount of baby killing in the film, too. A lot of baby killing. Yeah. So 
Yeah, I they have to establish he's the new villain, so he has to be you know worse than the last villain. I just so. spent the whole movie. I was with my brother. Spent the whole movie turning him and saying, "Now who's that?" There were so many different casts of characters, and they were all going off and doing their own thing. And I could never, I could never put my thumb on who was what and why they were doing things that they were doing, and it was very confusing. Every time the story and plot had a lull, where I got bored. Um, you know, the characters would say some new Fantastic Beasts name and it would be some cool lore thing in our real mythology. And and it would drag me in more because I like that stuff. Hmm. But as a movie, it's it's pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got to get to Ralph Breaks the Internet, which is this is a, an early review because it comes out Wednesday. But I want to give you a quick synopsis of the film. Ralph and Vanellope from the first film, they spend each night game hopping and goofing off. And while Ralph is content with this new routine, Vanellope is starting to get a little bored. Sugar Rush only has a handful of levels, and she's looking for a rush her game no longer provides. So well-intentioned Ralph wrecks a new road for her to spice things up. Unfortunately, this causes the arcade game steering wheel to break, and the proprietor, Mr. Litwak, doesn't want to cough up the dough to fix it. So, Ralph and Vanellope... You had to Google that name, right? Litwak? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ralph and Vanellope, they head to the internet via Litwak's newly installed router to purchase the last Sugar Rush steering wheel in existence and save all the game's characters from homelessness, as well as spare newlyweds Fixit Felix and Calhoun from having to adopt Vanellope's saccharin racing counterpart parts. Once online, Vanellope begins to see the internet with its fast pace, unpredictability, and product placement, I've never seen so much in one film, as just the change she's been craving, a realization that will test her relationship with our titular hero or anti-hero because he's actually the villain in his own game. Yes. I thought this film was so clever. I loved all the bits with the clickbait and the different items that were selling on eBay. However, I felt like there were a couple of scenes in the film that really made me pine for the Disney movies of old. And it was a sad realization that those days are gone because these Disney movies nowadays are so – they're so self-referential and they're so about parody that it kind of it kind of puts a damper on the the old Disney movies of my childhood that I loved so much. Especially when they drag all the princesses from your childhood into this movie for the sole purpose of a reference and for no plot reason whatsoever. Now, I understand you didn't enjoy this film, Cole. I didn't. I really, really, really loved the first Ralph Breaks the Internet. Or, uh, Rick and Ralph. Ralph. Right. Um, I liked the video game references. I felt like they kept those to a minimum and always put the plot and the relationship between Ralph and Vanellope first in that mm. first movie. Whereas in this second one, we get so convoluted with – Another convoluted plot. Yeah, A plot that you can't really tell what's going on and you lose kind of track of who's your hero and what's what's happening and who's the villain and why are they miscommunicating and why is there conflict in the first place. And references. I do feel like it was heartwarming, though. These are characters you actually care about. Although Fixit Felix and Calhoun practically have nothing Calhoun, to do. Calhoun, by the way, is the Jane Lynch character from right. the Call of Duty Halo-looking game. Right. First one. I thought it was heartwarming. I can't wait to take my kids to see it. Uh, you do want to stick through to the end because there are two post-credit scenes. It's a Disney movie. Both of which are very self-referential. And, you know, you kind of roll your eyes a little bit. But this film is so... So clever. So clever. And listen for Alan Tudyk as uh, Knows More. And this is 
arguably his funniest role in all the Disney movies that he's been in. And he's been in like every single one recently. So that's saying something. Cole, I know we want to go to commercial break with a little bit of sad news. You want to mention that? Yeah, the last news of the day, and, and we tried to focus on the good with screen cleaning, good entertainment, but one of my personal heroes and a hero in the entertainment world did pass away this week, Stan Lee, and this is a little uh, tribute to him that I've put together. With great power comes great responsibility. These are the arc words of my favorite superhero, Spider-Man, created by Stan Lee. Young Stan Lee had a great power, but like any good origin story, it took time to manifest. He was a 20-year-old intern filling ink wells. He was a 30-year-old ghostwriter. It took him till he was almost 40 before he put words to Jack Kirby's illustrations, combining forces to become the Fantastic Four. And then during the rest of the decade, he had a hand in creating the X-Men, the mighty Thor, the Incredible Hulk, Doctor Strange, Daredevil, and Spider-Man, among many other comic books that I grew up reading. But also in the 60s, he used his great power to write Stan's Soapbox, in which he encouraged good behavior amongst the primarily teenage boy audience reading his books. One of those teenagers being my dad. My dad shared with me his childhood love of these stories. It's something that we have always been able to bond over. And my dad was not a perfect guy, but he did so many good things for me, and the comics of Stan Lee helped me to see that. In an age of Superman the Boy Scout, Stan Lee wrote heroes that were flawed. They had moral quandaries or social debilitations. His heroes were just science geeks or blind kids. Some were cocky and others had... uh, anger issues. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. But all of them could still be heroes. So as we look back at Stan Lee's life after his passing, know that not everything he did was good, and don't be shocked to learn that he might have been a flawed hero himself. But I think that he did good with the great power that he had in his pen. Excelsior. There's so much content on TV, on these streaming devices now that it can be difficult to try to figure out what shows deserve my time. And And it can be said that the shows that we're getting each week and each year now in our modern golden age of television are better than what has come out before. Could be. So we want to pair them head to head. Yes, exactly. And, you know, a lot of these shows that we have today, if we're honest would not exist without some of these older shows. Oh, absolutely. So, when you're flipping through Netflix and you see things like Cheers and and uh, Frasier and all these shows that are decades old, do they hold up? Would you put these old shows in your queue to watch today? Would you watch them today? Another question you could ask to see if it still holds up, and th- this is the criteria that we will be using When we talk about our shows today, would I watch the entire series? Hmm. Would I stick it out to the end? And uh, it we'll we'll find out. We've got we each have five shows that we're going to be talking about in five different categories. And I've got to say, I'm going to give a little tease. They do not all hold up for me. But they also all don't. There's some there's some gems in the previous generations of television. That's true. 
and we'll get to those. But uh, first, we're going to go in alphabetical order here. So our first category is actually going to be animation. So, I mean, that that theme could really be played how you just did when we talk about animation, because when we think of animation, it's hard to ignore the amazing presence of Looney Tunes. And really, a lot, again, back to that comment I made earlier, we probably wouldn't have some of these shows today if it were not for Looney Tunes, right? Yes, it- Blazed the trail in front of them. So I was responsible for designating this show as to whether or not it still holds up. I watched a few episodes of it, what I could find online anyway, and it is still funny. After all these years, it is still funny. There were several moments that I laughed out loud. And we were talking about this during the break. You're going to mention it maybe on on the show that you're talking about. But it had some really edgy material back in the day. Not all just for kids. You Animation them... can be viewed by all. Exactly. You had them uh, spoofing Hitler, which Daffy Duck going up against Hitler. Just just Google that. It's so funny. And hearing Mel Blanc just butcher the German language by pretending to be a German officer is – that's one of the moments that just made me laugh out loud. Funny and insensitive accents are yes. a staple of old comedy. Yes, <laughs> just like Spike Jones. Spike Jones would have done the same thing. And speaking of Mel Blank, Mel Blank, in my opinion, is still the king of voiceover. Even though he's no longer living, he is an amazing voice talent and just a – he's so funny. So funny. When I watched this, I hopped online and I reserved Looney Tunes from the library, and I cannot wait to watch it with my kids because I can just picture my kids loving this show. And so it still holds up after all these years. I think I might have already watched all of the Looney Tunes at this really? point in my life, right? I, this, was a very, this was very much a staple in my house whenever I was growing up. And if Looney Tunes was not a thing, your show would not exist very true. And so I would like to tell you about all the reasons why the Animaniacs holds up. <laughs> okay. Great theme song, by the way. And they had a theme song that would change sometimes from episode to episode. They have a version that talks about Bill Clinton playing the sax. It was very much a product <laughs> of the 90s, and as am I. So when I look at Animaniacs and ask myself, does it hold up? It has to meet two criteria. Um, as, an, as most animation, I think, has to. I have to be an adult that would be willing to watch this show that is geared for kids. So True. it has to hold up just in general to adult viewing. And then it has to hold up through the generations of time. This is a show that I watched when I was a small child and I loved. And so I need to take off the rose-colored nostalgic glasses and see if I still enjoy it. And And I do. Very much to both counts. I can't always say – and so Animaniacs has a very unique concept in that they spoof deliberately some very adult things – that you don't get when you're when I was a five-year-old watching in the 90s. I had no idea that Good Feathers was 
an exact <laughs> shot-for-shot parody of Goodfellas. Wow. Because a five-year-old shouldn't be watching Goodfellas, shouldn't be getting those jokes, but you can still sit down and enjoy it when you were a kid. And then you can enjoy it even more and get what they're trying to get at when you go back in as an adult. Interesting. Favorite Animaniacs characters? Slappy the Squirrel is, ah. again, as an adult now, you get to see all the old Hollywood kind of things and jibes that she was putting in. And when I was a little kid, I related a lot with her little nephew, grandson, whatever, the, the tiny little cute peppy squirrel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and now as a little bit more of a an adult person, I... I sympathize with the grumpy old kind of curmudgeon. Wow. You know, I I don't know that I could just name one favorite Looney Tunes character, but I will say when Elmer Fudd was singing a song in the episode that I was watching, he's probably the character on Looney Tunes that can have me in stitches just by listening to his voice. (laughs) He has that funny of a voice. So my aunt's favorite Looney Tune character, and she loved Looney Tunes, and she's much of the reason why I enjoy this kind of area of comedy. Um, She loved Sylvester. I'm a big Wile E. Coyote fan. Those were always my favorite growing up. You mentioned Mel Blanc, and I don't want to get off Animaniacs until I tell you why Rob Paulson... If if Mel Blanc isn't the greatest voiceover man ever, Rob Paulson is, and all the work wow. that he's done. Wow. Um, all the songs that they incorporated into Animaniacs used his voice extremely well, and I think he's fantastic. I'm going to have to go give it another look. Mm-hmm. All right. So on to our next category. We've got our detective slash police show category. Now, this sounds like a video game, but it's actually a theme composed by Danny Elfman. There you go. Can you believe it? Of Batman fame and a couple other movie scores that we enjoy. So, this is a show that you're probably not familiar with from the 80s called Sledgehammer with an exclamation point, I might add. If it was the 80s and you put an exclamation mark at the end of your TV slash movie, or if it's a comedy, you were doing pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is a show that really spoofs police dramas and more specifically, Dirty Harry. You have this character whose name is Sledgehammer, and he is very much, uh, his gun is very much a part of his life. It's very much the love of his life. They make a point of showing you that he talks to his gun, and it lays on a pillow at night. And it is very much a spoof in the vein of Police Squad, or if you were to use a modern example, Angie Tribeca. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the better gags, I will say, are borrowed from other spoofs. Like the times that I laughed the most, I realized, wait a minute, that's from such and such a movie. They did that gag, but a little better in that other show. Um, It is a little dated. My biggest beef with it, though, is that it doesn't take itself seriously enough. Now, I know that sounds like a ridiculous statement to make. For a comedy. Because it is a comedy. But more specifically, it's a spoof. And in order to nail spoof, you've got to do what they did in the movie Airplane. You've got to take serious, dramatic actors, which apparently the actor in this show who plays Sledgehammer was known for being a dramatic actor. And you've got to have them say the most ridiculous lines with an absolutely straight face. You can't have them deliver the lines in a silly manner. They have to deliver them as if 
they are in a drama. So this show doesn't always do that very well. But if you're looking for something that's just a fun romp that is good to have on in the background, you you could do worse. However, it is not as good as the other two spoof cop shows that I mentioned, which in my opinion are superior. If you want a more recent example, take a look at Angie Tribeca on TBS. Or if you want an even better example, check out Police Squad. This show was way ahead of its time. It only had six episodes air, but it did spawn three movies starring Leslie Nielsen, Academy Award winner George Kennedy, and acquitted murderer... (laughs) Uh, alleged, alleged murderer. Right. And at the time of the movies, he was just star Buffalo Bills running back, O.J. Right. Simpson. <laughs> right. So again, look for one of those instead of Sledgehammer. I'm going to say that Sledgehammer does not still hold up. But again, when I'm at home editing, I'll have it on in the background, but mostly because I spent $2 to rent it from the library. Okay. So, Cole, what show are you going to be talking about? Well, I think you might just recognize it from the theme. Or at least the decade that it comes from, right? So, Cole, <laughs> not to offend you in any way, and this isn't your fault, not by a long shot. I'll take blame but, anyway. But of all the themes that we're going to be playing, I think this is the worst. <laughs> it's really bad. Well, just like the TV show itself, the fashion, <laughs> the cars, and everything else that comes from it, Miami Vice is unapologetically mid-1980s. Yeah. One of the reasons that I picked this show and one of the reasons that I picked it um, out of all of the police and and procedurals that are around and at our disposal for this category is that I looked up Sledgehammer and one of their kind of meta jokes that they used mm-hmm. was at one point they were going somewhere and he said, man, it's tough to be stuck between Miami and Dallas because mm. when Sledgehammer premiered, it was on Friday nights going opposite Miami Vice and Dallas to establish top 10 Zing. syndicated nice. shows. Um, Miami Vice didn't wasn't able to compete with Dallas either. I mean, if I called my mom and asked her to tell me anything about this show, she would say, oh, that was the thing that I was watching Dallas instead of. <laughs> yeah. The sports coats with like the solid colored shirts underneath with oh, the sleeves rolled up. Oh, white sports coat. Yeah, there Sleeves you go. rolled up, pink shirt underneath, <laughs> Ray-Ban sunglasses, <laughs> Everything about this show established just a certain aesthetic of the mid-1980s that I don't know – I don't know if it ever actually existed. I, I can't say. I was not there. Um, but it certainly gives you that feel that that's what the mid-1980s was. And and so it dove into it head first. And what I can say for this show is that it was very modern at the time. And I think this is a word of warning to people that are producing or developing television shows or movies that want to make them very now, want to make them very, you know, current and things like that, that if you do that, yep, they might tend to look ridiculous when viewed in hindsight. Okay. So are you saying that this is a film or a show that holds up or does not hold up? Oh, it very much does not. Okay. It, and more so than any other TV show that I watched this week, Miami Vice doesn't hold water whatsoever. I can see that. Well, we still have quite a few shows to get through and and deciding whether or not these older TV shows still hold up. We're doing you a service, really, because there's so much to watch. You you need to really filter through all of the uh, – not I don't want to say garbage, 
but the stuff that's a little uh, – well, let's just say expired. You open the right. fridge. The milk is past its date. It's time to throw it Something out. Something smells. Right? Put in some uh, some Arm and Hammer. Right. right. <laughs> and yes. uh, you got it. <laughs> when, when we return, we're going to go on to our next two categories, drama and the sitcom. When we return here on Screen Cleaning. What do you get when you cross a T-Rex with fireworks? Dino-mite. <laughs> I really hope you didn't laugh at that joke. That was an example of what I believe is the worst thing to happen to the entertainment industry since The Bachelor. It's the laugh track. Okay, say you're watching a sitcom like Seinfeld or Friends and somebody makes a joke and everyone laughs. But it's not the characters that are laughing, it's the audience, or the so-called audience. The laugh track is actually a recording of a group of people laughing, and they play it after a joke is told. To me, this says one of two things. Either you're so worried that your joke won't land that you have to literally tell me it was funny, or you think that I couldn't possibly be smart enough to understand what you're trying to say, so you have to tell me when to laugh. Now, the first use of the laugh track can be found in the 1950s on The Hank McCune Show, but the use was kind of spotty. People weren't sure how they felt about it until test screenings of Hogan's Heroes performed better with the laugh track added. This is something that really caught on in the entertainment world, and even shows like I Love Lucy that originally were shot in front of a live studio audience would record the audio and then play it back so that they could get the desired reaction. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that I Love Lucy or Seinfeld are bad shows. In fact, most of the jokes on either of those would work perfectly well without the laugh track because they're funny on their own. What I'm trying to say is that the laugh track lowers the quality of already good shows and makes bad shows seem less bad. I just watched a clip of The Big Bang Theory with the laugh track taken out, and I wasn't impressed. Most of the jokes weren't even jokes. They were the actors emphasizing words. But then again, I did watch a clip of Friends without the laugh track, and I found that I was laughing unprompted because the material was actually funny. As you've probably noticed, a number of shows don't have the laugh track today. Most people attribute that decline to HBO, who started to produce sitcoms like The Larry Sanders Show to run without canned laughter. Dear TV writers, don't tell me what to do. Let me decide what I think is funny. I'm Mickey Randall, and I really hate the laugh track. Whoa, things just got intense here on screen cleaning. Cole. You might could say dramatic. Whoa, Cole, do you recognize that theme? Oh, not one bit. Okay. <laughs> well, I am happy to introduce you to a little show called The Fugitive. Okay, I've heard of that. I think it was a movie, right? Now, <laughs> I had high hopes going into the show, and let me tell you why. It won the Emmy for Outstanding Dramatic Series in 1966. In 2002, it was ranked number 36 on TV Guide's 50th or 50 greatest TV shows of all time. So someone thinks it holds up. Now, this is 2002. There's been a lot of great TV that has come out in the last 16 years. But 
let's just say that my expectations were high for this. And not to mention the fact that the film that shares the name The Fugitive is one of my favorite movies, one of my wife's favorite movies. Anytime The Fugitive, the movie, is on TV, we will sit down and watch it regardless of the fact <laughs> yeah, regardless of the fact that uh, we own the movie on DVD. We could just plop in the DVD and watch it in less time. Right. But, you know, that takes too much work. And it was serendipity. It was meant to be if you saw it on TV that you That's had to stop true. and watch it. Yeah, exactly. Especially since we don't really have cable anymore. <laughs> um, let me give you the premise. The premise is the same as the film in that you have this doctor, Dr. Richard Kimball, who is convicted of murdering his wife. However, he's innocent. And as he's being transported on a train to be given lethal injection or to be put to death, the train crashes and he escapes. <gasps> there is a police detective that is after him, Sam Gerard, the same as in the movie, and as also in the movie, to his dying day, or almost to his dying day, he purported that a one-armed man was the real killer of his wife. So in this show, he'll be looking for the one-armed man. Meanwhile, he'll be going from town to town, changing his identity, changing his appearance, although in the few episodes that I've seen, he actually looked pretty much the same. But this show, considering it came, came on uh, back in the 60s, the acting is quite good. If you watch old shows like The Twilight Zone, well, that's not the best example, but a lot of older shows like that that they are can be dramas, stiff. Mm-hmm. yeah, they can be stiff or they can just they can be over actors that are in these shows, but the acting is quite good. Not only that, the writing is quite good. It was gutsy. Let's just say it was gutsy to go from the first episode where you had this police detective chasing him to going to the second episode, they're settled in a little more, no police detective. And it's about a little girl who is practicing witchcraft on this little doll that she has. What? It's a natural transition. What? And it works for some reason. But again, I I just love the movie, and so I had to give this a chance. So much so that I had to buy it on DVD because there was no other way for me to watch this. You can't stream it. You can't check it out from your library. And I knew I was was, uh, purchasing with... A good guarantee that I would get my money returned if I wanted to sell it later because you look at what people are selling it for and it's not cheap, folks. Let's just say that. So it's a TV show that other people apparently are – People love it. They demand it. Did you? I need to know. Here's the verdict on this one. The verdict on this one on whether or not this TV show still holds up after all these years, the verdict is still out, folks. I didn't know that was an option. I got a text approximately 15 <laughs> minutes before the show started with Jeff saying, "There's, I'm going to have one of three options here. It either does, doesn't, or maybe. Now, let me explain myself. <laughs> this show, the movie is what, two hours long? This show yeah. lasted four seasons, 120 episodes. So I, I need to give it a little more time. Okay, And I think that's fair because it's not going to be the same gripping type of drama that you would get with like a 24 or a Breaking Bad. However, because of the acting and because of the writing, I'm willing to give it a chance and keep watching it because I'm just fascinated by it. It's so different and unique that I, I can't dismiss it 
And yet, I, I'm not sure yet if it will hold my attention for 120 episodes. So the verdict is still out on The Fugitive. Very so, fitting because The Fugitive, you know, he's still on the loose anyway. <laughs> so this is the category that I think we're going to – this is why we're doing this show, I think, because it is in drama more so than other – genres that television has made leaps and bounds recently oh, yeah. in turning to just giant movie style extended arcs that sort of thing um and so we attacked two shows that were from the 1960s which mm -hmm. is bold of us to see if they can still stand the test of time uh and mine i think is a little bit more recognizable by theme only than the fugitive And also because there happen to be some recent movies. Cole, this is the song that goes through my head every time I put my son down and I try to sneak down the hall without waking him up. And I'm scaling the walls. Yeah. Mission Impossible. Yes. So as yours, your 60s television show kind of followed the same plot as the 90s movie. Yeah. Mine, not so much. Yeah. So the Mission Impossible TV show is more based on the cast of characters, whereas Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt in the movies kind of goes off script with IMF and he's kind of finding the moles in the organization. The Mission Impossible TV show had a very steady and solid format. Every episode, you knew what you were going to get. Was um, Peter Graves on this show? Yes. The guy was. from For a one of those bit. unsolved mystery shows, I think, is the show he was on. He was the first lead, and then he was kind of canned after a season or two. Well, that's um, a shame. I saw one episode with him, and I kind of jumped around in this. Again, with old dramas, it's not necessarily Breaking Bad-esque, where you have to start at the beginning sure. and progress your way through. Yeah. It is much more episodic in its episodes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This does not hold up for <gasps> me, I am sad to say, oh. just because... Out of a drama, I am now conditioned to expect more. I need, at very least, a seasonal arc. And and as I saw these characters kind of interact with each other, it made me think of better things that I watch nowadays. There's there's a not very great show on TNT called Leverage that oh, yeah. does almost exactly what this Mission Impossible does, only with better dialogue and with a season-long arc that kind of ties the missions together. And in a funnier kind of way as well, whereas this is just very stiff, like we talked about old school Hollywood acting, uh, a formulaic thing. I mean, sure, it's given us a lot of these tropes like the tape exploding in five seconds sure. or your mission should you choose to accept it or that wonderful theme song. But those elements on their own do not come together for me okay. to make a good enough television show to watch in 2018. Now, to be fair, I couldn't help but thinking while I was watching some of these shows if I were a child or if I were an adult back when these shows originally aired, would I have enjoyed them? Do you think you would have enjoyed this back then? Oh, absolutely. If it's yeah. not if it's not fighting for my attention with a lot of other things that have right. longer arcs and, and more engaging. There are just so many more options today. It's true. And, and they can take more liberties because they can they can afford to be a prestige show. They can wait two years in between each season. They can, you know, they can get a guaranteed 10 episodes, right? So they can start and finish their story. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of these other shows, you started it without the end in mind. And uh, yeah. You meandered till you got there. Right. And that's going to be a theme in our next category, I'm thinking, at least for my show. Oh, and mine has a little bit of the opposite end of it. So. Yes. So the next category is the sitcom. And you'll probably – this is another one of the shows that is very recognizable by the theme. 
can't argue that. It's a great theme. Absolutely. Um, but again, I'm convinced this is a show that started without the end in mind. It lasted 11 seasons. Well, it didn't even know which characters it wanted to feature or which characters would end up being popular. And we'll get to that. 11 seasons. And to be fair, since this show changed so drastically throughout its 11 season run, I wanted to get a little taste of... A little bit of kind of the evolution of Happy Days, right? I watched the pilot. The pilot is less focused on uh, catchphrases and comic relief. And it focuses just on a story that uh, I think a lot of teenagers back in those days and today, minus the smartphones, would appreciate trying trying to know how to talk to a girl that you're attracted to. And so that was just a nice, interesting pilot. The pilots are always the roughest part of any show. Many shows do not nail down the pilot very well. Uh, Then I watched an episode where the shift changed from the Ron Howard character and more toward the uh, Fonzie character, played by Henry Winkler. Thank you for putting that in there. Speaking of catchphrases, and uh, it was a completely different show. So going from season one to season three, a completely different show. And they did that. They changed the shift because uh, their ratings were not so good in the first couple of seasons. So once they started focusing more on Fonzie, things really took off from there. And then I wanted to get a taste of when the show kind of ventured off into the really bizarre territory. And I, I mentioned the example I'm going to mention is the character of Robin Williams as Mork an alien from the planet Orc. So all of a sudden you've got aliens on Happy Days. That is quite the evolution, folks. Now, even though on the show they pretended as if it was a dream, in a later episode you see, or later on in that episode, you see Robin Williams as Mork saying that he tricked them into thinking that it was all just a dream. So it's the kind of messy continuity that we just don't get nowadays. Yes, there were aliens on Happy Days. Now listen to this. Aside from the 11 seasons, this show spawned five spinoffs. Laverne and Shirley. Yep. Mork and Mindy, starring Robin Williams. Joni Loves Chachi. Yep. So those are the three that I knew. There were two more, Out of the Blue and Blansky's Beauties, which apparently featured Pat Morita's character in it. (laughs) Uh, There were also two spinoffs that were not picked up, The Ralph and Potsy Show and The Pinky Tuscadero Show. Of course, from everyone's favorite, seventh favorite character from Happy Days. Right. So this is also another, you don't see this as much today, but back then they would just milk these entities for all they were worth. Eleven seasons were not enough. You had to do seven other shows based or that were rooted in this Happy Days uh, universe. For me, it's a little too gimmicky, probably focus a little too heavy on uh, catchphrases and comic relief. I am going to say, and I'm going to upset quite a few people, and that probably me. Happy Days does not still hold up. Aww. And uh, I'm going to reference this show in our next block when we talk about our next category. But for me, Happy Days, I, I had to be honest, don't get me wrong. 
it's charming. It has some really fun characters, some fun dialogue, and some fun situations that they get themselves into. But if I'm honest with myself, I'm just not going to go back and watch it. I'm just not going to do it. Sorry, Cole. That's okay. And 11 seasons is a lot. When you when you set the requirement as I would want to go back and watch all of them, it's tough for that. And it's easier for the show that I picked for my sitcom, which is Arrested Development, also featuring Ron Howard and Henry Winkler and Scott Bayo and others. From this is, I just want to <laughs> say that this is so not fair that you get to talk about this one, but I'm, I'm going to let you do you it anyway. You can chime in. Okay. I get to talk about it, honestly, because I'm late to the party. Um, our goal, and to give you a peek behind the curtain as Jeff and I were deciding what to talk about on this show and how to frame it, we tried to attack shows that we had not seen before. Now, I revisited Animaniacs, but it had been a solid sure. 15 or 20, well, 15 years in between the last time I saw it and my more recent love and, and rekindled of that love for the show. Yeah. So by saying this, I am admitting that I had never really gotten into Arrested Development before this week. And boy, did I get into it this week. Um, I, I tell you, so Netflix keeps track of where you're at in shows. And this week, before we even decided we were doing a TV show, I started watching it. And I was on episode five because I'd tried two or three times before to, to get it. And I just didn't get it. Okay. And I finally got it. Um, right around episode five, I watched it and I just kept going through. And right now I'm about halfway through season two. So I didn't take this smorgasbord, you know, take some episodes from each season. Sure. Because I, I want to keep watching it. I was so excited by this show and I will intend to watch all of the episodes that are at my disposal that I didn't want to ruin the experience just to get a taste from what would come later. So I need to hear a little bit from you what happens in season four when they come back. Okay. I will say, don't. I hope your expectations for season four are not too high. Okay. Um, and also, we've been playing all the themes of these shows. This is one of the better themes that we have for you here today. You hear it, you're not going to forget it, and it's just a fun little ukulele rift. I guess it's a rift, not a rift. And uh, of all these shows that we're going to talk about today, Cole, or that we have talked about, this is the one that I think will hold up better than any of them. I think in 10, 20, 30 years, I could still watch this and still have belly laughs rolling on the floor. It is that funny. And it's not to say that it's not a sign of the, uh, a product of its times either. It's a very post 9-11-y in its oh, yeah. plot-driven kind of things. The, the whole kind of driving concept of the first couple seasons is that they're in the house-making business and they kind of had some shady dealings over in Iraq. And there's a lot of humor that comes from kind of needing to know some of the political atmosphere in America in 2002, 3, and 4 when it was coming out uh, that, that might get lost to the times if, you, if you're afraid of that. Sure. But we're still close enough to it that it has held up marvelously. Right. And I'm going to upset Cole with this comment as we go to commercial. This is my second favorite sitcom behind Seinfeld. Boo. <laughs> but it, you have a good second favorite choice at least, Jeff. When we return, we're going to give you our last category and tell you whether or not the TV shows in the spin-off category still hold up after all these years. This is Screen Cleaning. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always bad you can't. 
of all the shows that we're talking about here on Screen Cleaning today, I'm going to say that this is and the I most. I will agree. This is the most comforting theme song of all of these shows. You just feel good listening to this song. Not to say that uh, you know you need to go to a bar and forget about your troubles to feel good about yourself, but sometimes you really want to go someplace where everybody knows your name, where everybody Norm. where everybody loves you, where you're embraced, where you're appreciated. And we're going to be talking, of course, about the show Cheers. Now, interesting that this is in our spinoff category. I felt a little bad about this because Happy Days would have been a more fitting uh, selection for spinoff because but of all the spinoffs of it. If you chose Happy Days, that means I would have had to watch either Mork and Mindy or Laverne and Shirley. That's or true. Or Loves Chachi. An interesting fact about Happy Days, Happy Days was itself a spinoff of another show. Can you believe mm-hmm. that? There was an anthology show. Uh, I can't remember what – I think it's America uh, – I, I can't remember it, but – I should have written that down. Bringing up the trivia he doesn't know the answer to. That's my Jeff. It was an anthology series that ran for about five series or five seasons, and they pulled this Happy Days-esque segment from it. And, you know, it's interesting because the film American Graffiti is very much like Happy Days as well. And George Lucas saw uh, this, this original pilot, loved it, and decided to put Ron Howard in the movie American Graffiti. So everything is kind of interwoven. Oh, and if we're going back to a little bit of Happy Days and Arrested Development, many people think that Happy Days took a downturn when it jumped the shark. It had uh, Fonzie jumping over a shark. And there was a scene in Arrested Development where Henry Winkler's character uh, jumps over a shark. Classic. (laughs) Thank you for bringing that up, by the way. Also, like Happy Days, 11 seasons, it introduced us to America's sweetheart, Woody Harrelson. Uh, And like I said, it's just comforting. I I watched a few episodes of it, tried to get a good sense of how the story morphed over the years. Did not have the type of evolution that Happy Days did. It was more consistent. I just tried to get a sense for all the different characters that were introduced, like Woody Harrelson and Kirstie Alley. And uh, it's a show that has characters you really care about. And... Portrayed by very likable actors, Ted Danson, Shelley Long, two of the most likable actors that you can name right there. One of the best will they won't lays. And I mean, that's strong for sitcoms, right? The writing is quite good. The jokes are very funny. And again, you don't get much better than the theme song to Cheers. I'm going to say that Cheers, after all these years, still holds up. I'm looking forward to going back and discovering it for the first time and watching it, hopefully, in its entirety on Netflix. So you had never really dove into Cheers before this week, correct? Correct. I have. I Uh love Cheers. Yeah. Um, But I had never dove into its main spinoff, Frasier, before. Mm. But you have, correct? I have not, actually. So I I have seen several. I had seen more Frasier than I had Cheers. I will say that. I had seen zero Frasier up until this week. And so I got it with entirely fresh eyes. And I started with the episode of Cheers that I watch anyway. Um, But I started with the episode where Frasier gets introduced. I went back and rewatched that one. Yes. And then kind of watched a little bit of of his introduction as as a psychologist and as a therapist kind of thing. Um, And his evolution to going back to Seattle after his breakup with his wife, spinning off into Frasier, taking on a very Matt Townsend role for Seattle Radio, where he is a, a doctor that 
talks through people's problems sometimes on the radio. And also 11 seasons. Also 11 seasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, Frasier, for me, was a little... Frasier was one of my least favorite characters in Cheers. He belonged there mm. because it, it was nice to have this kind of different intellectual upper snobby kind of guy that Ted Danson could poke fun at. Sure. But as soon as you make Frasier his own guy and it's up to kind of his dad and their live-in nurse to be the ones to make fun of him, but but he's the one driving the show, I think it loses a little bit of that. Okay. And as, as a poor working class man that I am anyway, as, <laughs> as opposed to a guy that wants a grand piano in his loft apartment in Seattle, um, I didn't. I was not as enamored by Frasier, and I do not think that it holds up as well as Cheers. Wow. Okay. Interesting. You know, it's so funny because if you look at um, Kelsey Grammer mm-hmm. and his brother on Frasier, they are shockingly similar. They look like they are brothers in real life. And it was fun to again go back and watch the episode of Cheers when Frasier's introduced because there's there's kind of a joke. There's also an episode where Ted Danson comes on uh, to Frasier after a while and mm-hmm. plays his same character, um, and he makes the comment, "Hey, your brother. You know, I remember when you used to look like this. Ha ha. You gained some weight, but like." When you go back and see that episode of Cheers, Kelsey Grammer does look a lot like yes, he does the guy that plays David Price Hyde Pierce. David Hyde. It's three names. It's it's not David Hyde Pierce. Yes, yes, yeah. Even when he's young, yeah, when he's younger, he looks even more like him. Uh-huh. It's crazy. Okay, so Cheers holds up. Frasier does not. Not so much. So sorry. There's good in them there hills. We did mention many, well, 10 TV shows here on the show today and discuss whether or not they still hold up after all these years. I'm going to mention another TV show because there are so many that we could have talked about that we just couldn't get to. I'm going to mention one show that's current, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that many years from now, I do believe it still will hold up. And speaking of Ted Danson, Ted Danson is has a starring role in this TV show. And the reason I think this show will hold up is because they focus more on the writing. They don't focus as much on the number of episodes. They don't focus as much as trying to have catchphrases, although there could be some catchphrases pulled from this show. It's a little show called The Good Place. Now, the premise of The Good Place is you start off in this office setting. Kristen Bell of Frozen fame is this character who has died and she has now found herself in the good place. She's being given a tour around this community that uh, is very pleasant. There's a yogurt stand on every corner pretty much. Ted Danson is kind of the uh, the architect of this community. And Ted Danson is, as we all know, very delightful. And they're paired up with their soulmate. Who wouldn't want to meet their soulmate, right? Well, the only catch is, and Kristen Bell is not about to tell anyone in this community this little tidbit of information, she doesn't belong in the good place because she was not a very good person. And so she divulges this to her soulmate, and it's up to her and her soulmate to keep this little piece of information secret and not let anybody discover this fact so that she doesn't get thrown out and put into the bad place. 
Very funny show. The end of season one has the greatest twist I've probably ever seen in any TV show. Check it out. And again, this is a show that I'm going to predict will last the test of time or pass the test of time. Today on the show, just like we do on many of our shows, we put in all the hard work so you wouldn't have to. Now, go check out a couple of these shows and see whether or not we were right. That's going to do it for today's episode of Screen Cleaning. We're here every Friday on BYU Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, as well as Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Join us next week for our special Black Friday show. Thank you for listening to Screen Cleaning. Screen Cleaning.